In John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And there's no better time to reflect on those words than on this Memorial Day weekend when we remember and honor those men and women who have given their lives in service to this country to defend our freedom, our homes, and our families from the dark forces in this world that seek to kill and destroy everything that we hold dear. It is the highest calling of Christ and the greatest sacrifice that can be made to lay down your life for another. And so we're eternally grateful for everyone who has made that sacrifice so that we can continue to gather freely as we have today to worship and fellowship and pursue the lives that God has called us to to dream big dreams and pursue those dreams without fear of persecution or punishment that so many around the world have to face every day as they pursue the call of Christ on their lives. Uh, Alex, I don't know where Alex is. The mic is ringing up here, I don't know. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Listen, the truth is, if you're not chasing God-sized dreams while living in this country, you have no good excuse because the only thing stopping you from pursuing God's call on your life is you. And I think most of us do dream big, at least when we're young. I think at one point or another, we aspire to do great things with our lives. Everyone wants their life to count for something big, something meaningful, something that makes a difference in this world. But of course, life happens. And we're confronted with challenges and, and obstacles, things standing between us and those dreams. And often our vision for the future changes. Our expectations shrink. Our enthusiasm for pursuing those dreams begins to wane until the passion we once had for that vision of the future is gone. And so often we settle into a life that seems necessary, inevitable, responsible. A life that may meet others' expectations for us far more than it does our own. But why is that? Why is that pattern, at least in our culture, so often repeated in the lives of so many people? Well, there's an answer for that question, but the answer puts the onus back on us. It puts the responsibility for our lives being the way that they are back on us. It, it, it puts the ball back in our court, and we don't always like that because it's far easier and has become common in our society to blame someone or something else when life is not all that we hoped it would be, when it seems somehow unfulfilling, right? It's society's fault. It's the system's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the economy's fault. It's my family's fault. It's my spouse's fault. Or maybe it's just the way it is. The truth is all those things, it's just a cop-out. That's the coward's way out of taking responsibility for the life that God has intended for you to live. Because God does have a plan for every single one of our lives. And God's plan for you is the only path to experiencing true fulfillment in this life. But you have to choose to follow that plan. Because you can enjoy all sorts of things, right, in this world. And that's great. You can accomplish many significant achievements. That's great. You can accumulate tremendous wealth. That's great. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. But when all of that or any of that is divorced from God's plan, 
None of those things, those accolades, none of those achievements alone will bring any fulfillment in your life. They will not satisfy you, not for very long, because every one of us was created for a specific purpose, and it is only through the realization of that purpose, that plan, that anyone can ever experience true fulfillment, the satisfaction that only comes when you know that you are daily living in the center of God's will for your life. Yet I believe that so many people, I'm talking about Christians, so many of us never quite get there in this life because rather than choosing God's plan for us, we've bought into this cultural conviction that ultimate fulfillment is realized through consumption by serving ourselves rather than serving God and others. It's all about what we can get rather than what we can give. Our culture teaches us from the time we're young that real fulfillment is found ultimately in what we can do for or obtain for ourselves. And so many of us, if we're being honest, we spend our lives, even as believers, primarily focused on ourselves, believing that once we've lifted ourselves to a certain standard of living or a certain level of self-gratification that we can then give out of our excess and by doing so achieve some kind of balance in our lives. The problem is for many people we never actually attain to whatever that level is, that standard that we think we need to be happy or to be satisfied so we just keep on striving for more. Like it's never enough and all the while we're focused whether we realize it or not on ourselves. And in the process, the dreams that we once had, the dreams to change the world, to do something big, to make a difference, to impact other people's lives in profound ways, those dreams die and become replaced with an insatiable drive toward consumption, an appetite for self-satisfaction, which at the end of the day actually produces the opposite in us. Do you know that? The truth is the constant pursuit of self ultimately produces self-loathing. It produces dissatisfaction with life and deep-seated feelings of unfulfillment. It's the exact opposite of what we think. The idea that we can consume our way to satisfaction and fulfillment is, is a hollow promise. It is a soulless pursuit that leaves people broken and dysfunctional and burned out and disillusioned with their lives. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, 35. We're more blessed when we give than when we receive. That is antithetical to the humanistic philosophies of this world, and yet that's exactly what our culture is constantly shoving down our throats, that being responsible means having enough to ensure that there's never any want in our lives. That it is desirable to never lack anything. As if that is a good thing that somehow we're being reckless when we intentionally risk our own comfort and security and the comfort and security of our families to realize the dreams God has put in us, that it's negligent to not earn as much money as possible or amass as much as we can, that somehow we're less caring toward our loved ones if we intentionally do anything that may put our safety or even their safety at risk. But you know what? I think inherently we know that that's wrong. I think deep down we know that God created us for something bigger than ourselves, something bigger than what we've settled for and try to convince ourselves is right. And I'll tell you why, because we willingly 
and often enthusiastically not only applaud, but we financially support missionaries like the ones we just saw with small children who move into extremely dangerous parts of the world where they can be killed just for sharing the gospel. Why would we fund people's unimaginable irresponsibility if we really believed that putting your family at risk for the sake of God's calling on your life was unimaginably irresponsible? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't send them our money. In fact, we not only send them our money, we write entire books and make movies about those who become martyrs as they live out their purpose to the fullest. We celebrate people who turn down comfortable and safe lives in order to work in the slums of the world, giving their entire lives to helping the most vulnerable among us. We call those people heroes, giants of the faith because of the sacrifices they make and the results that we see from their lives. Because I think deep down, we know that living with that kind of abandon for God is the most fulfilling life that we could ever live, even though so many of us are unwilling to live that way. Those are the kind of lives we often only dream about. Lives that seem far from the reality of our own, and so we make excuses for ourselves because we believe that we don't have the background or the skills or the qualifications to achieve the extraordinary, right? So we settle for ordinary because it's safe, it's comfortable, and our culture has convinced us that it's the right way to feel. Welcome to the real world, right? It's just the way life is. And so we allow our dreams to die and our passion with them and we turn our focus inward because even though we've settled for less than God's perfect plan for us, we still want to feel fulfilled. We still long to experience satisfaction with our lives, everyone does, and so if we're not willing to pursue God's plan to that end, with all of the risk and uncertainty and discomfort that living that way can produce in us at times, and it does. Right? If we're not willing to live that way, then maybe we can find fulfillment some other way. Maybe we can find it in self-pursuit. I'm just telling you, it's a dead end every time because God's plan for your life involves far more than just you. When, when you're focused on yourself, though, you can't see all that he's intended and planned for you that's outside of yourself. And, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that our lives are not extraordinary unless we're out on the foreign mission field or risking our necks in some third world country that's hostile to the gospel. Sometimes he does call us out away from where we are into an entirely different set of surroundings and a whole new paradigm for our lives. He does sometimes, but the fact is many Christians are called to be exactly where they are right now. Okay, the question is not always are you willing to uh, chuck everything and, uh, that he's given you and do something else. Often the question is what are you willing to do with what he's given you already? Right, what are you, what are you focused on? Yourself, your plan, or are you focused on Jesus Christ and his plan for you? Right where you are now, with what you have right now. We're so averse to risk, to sacrifice, to focusing more on him and others than we do on ourselves, that we've become impotent in what we actually are able to accomplish for Christ. Because that's where you find fulfillment when your life is focused on God's plan for you. That's when your life becomes Truly extraordinary, exceptional. And that's when other people's lives are literally changed, really changed, because of the life that you're living. Other people's lives are changed. 
when we abandon the self-focused life of constant consumption and follow the extraordinary plan of God instead. And I'll just tell you from experience that living that way is at times unsettling. It requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice and often it is a huge leap into the unknown. My family, we gave up, most of you know the story, we gave up everything we had, walked away, career, big income, belongings, friends, family, to pursue God's plan for our lives. We moved 5,000 miles away and started over with almost nothing, surrounded by complete strangers doing something we'd never done before. And just about the time, three years in, just about the time we settled into that life, God uprooted us again and moved us back here to start a church with no income, no resources, no training. Okay? That was downright scary for us. It was unpredictable. It was very uncertain at times. To many people who we are very close to, it was irresponsible. But that's what following God's plan at that point in our lives looked like for us. It may not look that way for you, but whatever it is for you, I'm just telling you, it's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to follow God's plan for your life, it's worth it. Because there's no other way for you to become all that God has created you to be. So look, the ball's in your court. It's up to you to decide whether or not to follow God's plan for your life. And as we continue in this story this morning, working our way through the book of Esther, we're going to see a remarkable example of what God can do through us when we're willing and obedient, willing to risk everything and obedient to his plan for our lives no matter the cost. And my hope is that through this story today and over the next several weeks that we will allow ourselves to begin to dream again to realize, first of all, that God's plan for you hasn't expired and it isn't unobtainable, no matter how big or world-changing it may be, because God alone is the ultimate arbiter of your future. And therefore, what we achieve in this life is actually based on his qualifications, not ours. Aren't you, aren't you glad for that? How far you can go in life, what you can achieve in this life is based on who he is and what he's done. All that you have to do is be willing and obedient. He'll take care of everything you need. So let's jump back into this story where we left off last week at chapter two. Just to set the scene from last week, the, the Jews in our story are living in exile under Persian rule. In fact, this particular generation of Jews was born into exile, and in chapter one, the Persian king Ahasuerus has thrown this massive six-month-long party in order to impress his guests and garner support from key military and governmental leaders for the coming invasion of Greece. And at the end of this whole affair, the king sends for his wife, Queen Vashti, who is to be brought before his drunken guests to be paraded around before them because as verse 11 puts it, she was lovely to look at. The king wants to impress the party goers by making his wife model for them. And so she shuts him down. She refuses to come, and, and so he divorces her in dramatic fashion and goes as far as passing a law, a decree, that all women in the kingdom who are married must henceforth by law honor and obey their husbands. Okay, and that's where we left the story. So we pick it back up at chapter 2. We'll begin with the first four verses. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the queen, uh, king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So verse uh, 1 opens up with after these things. That sounds like chapter 2 picks up the story immediately after the events of chapter 1, but actually, uh, as we'll see in verse 16, there was a four-year span of time between chapters 1 and 2. It was a particularly eventful period of time for the Persian Empire because during that time, King Ahasuerus, he was also known as Xerxes I, made his great but unsuccessful invasion of Greece, which included the now famous Battle of Thermopylae, and ultimately he came home defeated and humiliated. So when verse 1 says, after these things, it's including a lot more than the things mentioned in chapter 1. The point is, the king here in the beginning of chapter 2 is downtrodden. I mean, he's depressed. His wife rejected him, so he divorced her. And then after six months of convincing his nation's leaders to go to war with Greece, he comes back soundly beaten after depleting most of his military resources and his kingdom's resources. So again, when verse 1 says, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had been abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what happened and what he decreed against her. There's a hint there of remorse and loneliness, right? He's been rejected by his wife, beaten in battle, and severely weakened his own dynasty. The king is humiliated, he's depressed, and he's lonely. And so when verse 2 says that the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, this was their attempt to lift the king's spirits, right? To try and bring the man back around. So they decide to hold a Miss Persian Empire contest to try and cheer up the king by finding him a new queen. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 8. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So uh, there's this massive roundup of eligible young women for the pleasure of the king and the purpose of finding him a new queen. And among them was this Jewish girl named Esther, which was her Persian name, which means star, Her Hebrew name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. And interestingly, the myrtle bush or myrtle tree that grew on the hills around Jerusalem was prophetically symbolic of the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance and protection of his people, which we find in Isaiah 41, 19 and 55, 13 and also Zechariah 1, 8, where the myrtle replaces the thorns in the dry desert places and offers protection for her people as well. And as we progress through the book, we'll see increasingly that Esther, uh, as she's known here, is a type of Christ. She is a foreshadowing of the Christ. And so although he's not expressly mentioned in this book, there is prophetic symbolism throughout that points us to the Messiah. In fact, 
you don't have to look too hard to see Jesus represented throughout this story. And in addition to the prophetic symbolism in these verses, there's a great lesson to be learned from Esther's own circumstances here, which is that God's plan for you is not determined by your past. Because Esther, apart from the sovereign hand of God directing her life and circumstances, listen, she would have been the least likely candidate to be chosen for the future that was imminently before her. Verse 5 tells us she was a Jew. And just as we've seen throughout history, including today, wherever there are Jews, there's anti-Semitism, which, which we'll see at its worst uh, later in this book. And so just being a Jew among hundreds of non-Jews, hoping for the same possibility of becoming queen, would not have been an advantage, again, apart from God's providence at work in her life. And then verse 7, we read that both Esther's parents died, and so she was being raised by her cousin Mordecai. So this is an orphaned girl who doesn't have the advantage of her parents to raise her and guide her through life. And then verse 8 tells us that many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai. And according to uh, the first century historian Flavius Josephus, there were 400 young women selected for this purpose. So here's Esther, a young Jewish girl with no parents, and what amounts to a competition with hundreds of other non-Jewish girls, many of whom probably had very strong family backgrounds, probably some were even tied to the Persian court. And so from the outside looking in, the young Jewish girl with no parents doesn't stand a chance. She has no royal ties, no impressive lineage, right? no parents, no prospects, no future. Everything would seem to be stacked against her. And yet, as we'll see, Esther becomes queen of the most powerful empire ruling over the vast majority of the known world at the time. Okay, the shortcomings and disadvantages of Esther's past had absolutely no bearing on the greatness of her future. Because God's plan for her was not determined by her past. It was determined solely on who he created her to be, the queen of Persia. You understand the same is true of you and I today? Okay, God has a plan for every single one of your days. And he created that plan actually from long before he created you. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Think about that. There is not one moment of your life that is a surprise to God or that he cannot overcome. Which means not one moment of your past can negate one moment of the future that God has planned for you. No matter where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you, how bad of a mess you've made or any disadvantage working against you, none of it, none of it can overcome the plan that God has put in place for your life from before the foundations of the earth. Because God's plan for you is not determined by your past. So listen, God's not worried about your past. Why are you? If God, who's in control of everything, if he's not pacing the floor worried or defeated or uncertain about your future, then why in the world would you be? Doesn't make any sense. Yet we convince ourselves that our future is somehow limited or tied to our past. And so 
I suppose if our future depended solely upon us, then yes, we would have reason to be worried. But it's not our plan. It's God's plan, and he is bigger than what happened yesterday. He's in control of what happens today, and he is the author of what happens tomorrow. God is sovereign. He's in control over all of it. And so just in case you feel that somehow you need permission to let go of something in your past that you feel is keeping you from walking in the fulfillment of God's plan for your future, then you can just consider this permission granted. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 through 14. As Haggai, the king's man who had charge over these women, gets to know Esther. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her, uh, her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman uh, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So back in verse 7, we read that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So obviously, from a physical standpoint, Esther is quite stunning, but it would be a mistake to think that it was her physical appearance alone that won her the favor of just about everyone she ever came in contact with. Because remember in verse two, the king's men said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. In other words, these weren't just 400 young women. These were 400 young, beautiful women. They were all physically beautiful. Okay, there was clearly something else about Esther that made others take notice of her above the other 399 beautiful women. And I believe Proverbs 3, 3 and 4 explain what it was. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Throughout this book, Esther demonstrates this exact uh, characteristic, her steadfast love and faithfulness. These were character traits that made Esther stand out in the crowd. In fact, they are the antithesis of the behavior of Queen Vashti uh, when she refused the king. And certainly no one is giving the king a pass, by the way. His behavior was abhorrent in chapter one, but Esther, time and again throughout the story, proves her love and faithfulness in stark contrast to the former queen's pride and defiance to heed the king's command. The point being, these qualities in Esther didn't show up once she reached the king's court. Now, these were attributes that were instilled and cultivated in her from a very young age. In the Bible, uh, names for children were chosen to symbolize who they were and who they would become. And true to form, we see so many examples of people in scripture who lived up to their names. There was always a great significance to one's name. And again, Esther's Hebrew name 
Her real name is Hadassah or Myrtle, which symbolized the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God to protect his people. And the Myrtle tree was known for this sweet-scented and luxuriant beauty. So Esther, or Hadassah, was simply living up to her name. She's just being herself, and it won her the favor of many people, including the king and his attendants, as we'll see. And yet Mordecai had instructed her to conceal her lineage as a Jew, which she was faithful and obedient to do, as there was a very close and loving relationship, of course, between her and Mordecai, which we see again throughout the story, and even here in verse 11, which tells us that every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem because he wanted to find out how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. So Mordecai loved and wanted to protect Esther because there was great anti-Semitism in parts of the Persian culture, which probably would have been even more pronounced during this selection process if others had found out that Esther was a Jew. So Esther is therefore faithful and obedient to Mordecai and keeping her Jewish identity a secret. And then verse 12 tells us that there was a 12 month long process of beautifying before they would go into the king, including treatments with oil and spices and ointments during that time. And the descriptions, by the way, if you have time to read them about what these women went through in preparation to be with the king are actually fascinating, but we don't have time to cover all of that today. Uh, however, it's important to note that the 12 months, the 12 month period of preparation wasn't simply because uh, it took them that long to make these women physically acceptable to be seen by the king. A big part of the reason they waited a year was to be able to determine definitively whether or not any of the women had been pregnant already before coming into the harem so that the king would not be responsible with fathering a child that was not actually his. So there's a lot at stake here for these young women. A tremendous amount of time and money and manpower has been invested to prepare them for their time with the king. And I, I just want to mention something about this whole scenario before we continue in the story because we read about all this and people tend to turn their noses up at this whole scenario, uh, and certainly no one's condoning it or saying that this is the way it should be. It's not, it's the height of arrogance and presumption and lasciviousness to take 400 young girls from their families who once they entered the harem, by the way, could never return to their families or marry anyone else. This, this was their entire life once they were a part of the king's harem. But when girls in that culture were selected for the harem, they didn't go kicking and screaming. This was for them akin to winning the lottery because so many of them had zero prospects for much of a future, just like our poor orphan girl Esther here. And, and yet once selected for the king's harem, they not only lived out their lives in the lap of luxury and opulence, having the very best of everything, surrounded by others in the same status, but many of these women, most of them would never end up ever even seeing the king because these kings had hundreds of wives and concubines who they would often go their entire lives having intimate relations with just a few of them and even among those who did go into the king most of them only saw him one time in their life they were never taken back to him again as we see in verse 14 and yet they lived the rest of their lives being cared for uh, in the king's court and so I just think it's important before we judge these women who entered the harem for actually wanting this fate, just think about how many people in our culture willingly choose to get up every morning their entire lives and go to jobs they absolutely hate 
laboring day in and day out for decades, all for the hope of earning enough money to spend the rest of their time on this earth living in relative comfort and ease. It may be different, but it's not as different as we think, particularly for those who never even had to see the king, right? So this was for many of these women the best hope for some kind of future they would ever be presented, and they took it willingly. Again, doesn't make it right either way, but we should probably consider their motives with the measure of grace in view of many of our own decisions that we make about our own lives. Okay, let's keep reading. Verses 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So after 12 months of preparation and validation was over, these young women are taken to the king one at a time, and they could take anything they wanted with them when they went to see him to try and please the king on their night of nights. And Esther, in the month of Tebeth, that was midwinter, 10th month of the Jewish religious calendar, in yet another display of great wisdom, right? She knew that Haggai knew the king and his preferences far more than she possibly could, so she trusted Haggai to advise her on how to approach the king. And as a result, Esther goes to the king in a manner suggested by the author here, probably of understated simplicity, right? And it was probably in great contrast to the other Gentile women uh, who were heav heavily adorned with over-the-top clothing and jewelry and cosmetics. And as a result, Esther wins the king's favor and becomes queen of Persia. And so the king holds a great feast in honor of the new queen. He sets the crown of Vashti on her, the one that Vashti ultimately refused. He puts it on Esther's head. He celebrates her with all the people. It's a stunning turn of events for Esther, as we'll see, for the Jewish people as a whole as well. But it's also a great example for us that God's plan for you is not dependent upon your accomplishments. Yes, again, Esther was beautiful. But out of the 399 other women, do we really think it was physical beauty alone that won her the heart of the king? The heart of Mordecai, the heart of Haggai, the hearts of all those other women with whom she was in competition. Because verse 15 says Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Yet she didn't have the pedigree of the others. She didn't have the prospects of the others. She didn't have the resources of the others. She didn't have the position of the others. All that she had was who God created her to be and a willing and obedient heart. She couldn't point to a list of accomplishments that qualified her to be queen. This was a poor, orphaned Jewish girl. What in the world had she ever accomplished in her own life that could be listed as a qualification for becoming and serving as queen over a pagan nation that happened to be the most powerful nation in the world at the time? She hadn't accomplished anything whatsoever that could possibly qualify her for that title, for that position, or for that future. 
Yet out of the 400 most beautiful and qualified and accomplished women in the kingdom, the king chose Esther to be queen. Why is that? Because God chose Esther to be queen from long before she was ever born. It had nothing to do with any previous accomplishments or qualifications because she had none. It had everything to do with God's plan which had long been established for her. Okay, look, you don't need a wall full of plaques or a Facebook account full of friends or social media followers or a long list of professional achievements or any other accolade when it comes to God's plan unfolding in your life. You just need a willing and obedient heart. That's all he's looking for in you. A willingness to follow his plan and obedience to follow through with that plan as it is revealed to you, which is not a one-time decision, by the way. Being willing and obedient to follow God's plan for your life is a daily decision. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would decide to willingly and obediently follow God's plan for their life, then let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Daily, Jesus said we have to make that decision to willingly and obediently follow him every single day. He didn't say if you're willing and obedient and qualified. He didn't say once you've reached a particular level of accomplishment, then you should take up your cross and follow me. No, he simply said deny yourself, your natural inclination to serve yourself, right? Self-consumption, right, for oneself. And instead choose every single day to willingly and obediently follow me. Right? There's a place for mentoring, for discipleship, for learning. I'm a strong believer in education. Of course, some of the greatest education you'll ever receive in your life is experience, and along with those experiences often comes accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to be ashamed of for what God allows you to accomplish, but at the same time, those accomplishments are not special keys that open the doors to the next level of God's plan for you. That's exactly how we we view our lives most of the time, that we can only walk in willing obedience to God's plan once we've attained to some particular level of accomplishment. Listen, Esther is a great example of the fallibility of that way of thinking because God alone opens the doors to your future. God alone makes his plan for you, available to you, and it's God alone and what he accomplishes in you that qualifies you for the next step in his great plan in your life. You're not limited by your past, and you're not limited by a lack of accomplishments. You're only limited by your own unwillingness and disobedience. Listen, more than any outside pressure or opposition that you'll ever face in this life that tries to stop you from carrying out your calling, the single greatest threat to successfully carrying out God's will for your life is your will. The single greatest threat to successfully carrying out God's will for your life is your will. More than any other pressure that you'll ever face in this life that opposes your calling, the most difficult opposition that you'll have to overcome is your own will when that is different than his will. Because if your will is not in line with his, then of course you have a choice to make, right? Willingness to follow him or unwillingness. Obedience to follow him or disobedience. The apostle Paul describing himself said, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do not... If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, Romans 7, 15 through 20. This is the great apostle Paul struggling with doing what God wants him to do. Why? Because what Paul wants to do, his will, is at times in contention with God's will. And that's the case with every single one of us. Every one of us falls profoundly short of God's absolute standards for our lives, and God knows that. And there's grace and forgiveness for that. The problem is, when we're more committed to our will, to our plan for our lives, than we are to his plan for our lives, right? Then, then when his plan presents itself, we push back. Because it's not what we expected, it's not what we envisioned, maybe it's not even what we want. And so instead of willingness and obedience, we respond to God with defiance and disobedience. That's how Queen Vashti responded to the king's command. When in contrast, Esther responds with willingness and obedience to God's plan, and in the process, his plan, his purpose is fulfilled in her and through her. Let's finish the story then, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How easy would it have been for Esther, once crowned the queen of this vast empire, to feel as though she'd arrived, that she'd been dealt a difficult hand early in life as an orphan born into exile in a pagan land, but now God's favor and blessing were smiling down on her, and this was her time to shine. Right after all, the whole kingdom has celebrated her. Everyone loves her. She has all that she could ever want, right? It's all about Esther. Or so it would have been easy for her to think, but th this wasn't just about Esther. And she knew it. There was far more going on in Esther's life than that which immediately concerned Esther because God's plan for Esther was bigger than her. And listen, God's plan for you is bigger than you. We not only have to understand this, we, we're responsible for it. We have to steward the plan of God in our lives. Okay, for Esther, there was a larger game afoot here. She and Mordecai could have resigned the affairs uh, of the pagan court as not concerning them, but they didn't. They very much concerned themselves with the larger story that was unfolding before them. God had placed both of them in strategic positions to affect the lives of others, not just for their own blessing. By the way, uh, it wasn't just that Esther was queen. In verse 19, where Mordecai's described it, sitting at the king's gate, that phrase, king's gate, it's Melech Shahar in the, in the Hebrew, refers to the royal court. In other words, Mordecai wasn't just lounging around at a gate in the courtyard. He was working there in an administrative capacity within the palace, otherwise he wouldn't have been there. Okay, these 
Two were placed strategically by God to affect the lives of others and as a result of their willingness and obedience to something greater than themselves, a conspiracy to assassinate the king was foiled, the king's life was spared, Mordecai and Esther's stock is to rise even more as this intervention by the two of them was recorded in the king's book of Chronicles, which Herodotus, the fourth century BC historian, writes about. Uh, He calls it an official list in the Persian archives naming the king's benefactors, and that actually is gonna factor into the story prominently in the coming weeks. Okay, when we're willing and obedient in following God's plan for our lives, other people are affected by that. And we see that really all the way through this story. Back in chapter one, verse seven, during the first feast when the king and his men, thinking only of themselves, were all getting drunk, it says the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And I think it's fascinating that here in chapter two, verse 18, at the second feast, the one for Esther, there was a completely different result coming from the royal court at this party. It says that the king granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The royal generosity spoken of here was most likely food given to the poor so that everyone in the kingdom could share in the celebration. And if you look at the phrase at the end of both of those passages, at the end of both celebrations, the first one and this one for Esther, in the original Hebrew language, it's the same phrase, melech yod. It means the same lavishness that the wine was doled out to the horde of drunken men at the first party with that same lavishness, gifts of benevolence were given out to the poor at the second party. What was the difference from the first party to the second? The new queen, Esther. You see, the plan that God had for her life, it transcended just her life. It affected everyone throughout the kingdom, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave and free, because God's plan for Esther was bigger than Esther. And that truth will become even more pronounced as we work further into this story over the coming weeks. For today, we simply must take hold of this truth for ourselves, not only in how we think and feel, but in how we act. Because God's plan for you is bigger than you. Which means we have a responsibility to use the gifts and the calling that he designed for us long before we were here to their greatest effect for the sake of not just our personal lives, not just our family, or just our circle of friends, but we must leverage every ounce of gifting and calling that he has put inside of us to affect the entire kingdom, all of God's people, both those who are following him now and those who have yet to. And when we do that, when we begin to spend ourselves, which means denying our natural impulse to serve ourselves, when we do that, when we deny ourselves daily and instead we spend every ounce of the gifts and calling within us in service of the king and the kingdom, God and his people, I'm telling you, your life will change. It will change dramatically from ordinary to extraordinary, from safe to exceptional, from full of self to full of purpose, and from less than satisfied to ultimate fulfillment. Because that's where you find it. When your life is focused on God's plan for you, That's when your life becomes extraordinary, exceptional, and that's when other people's lives are literally changed 
because of the life that you are living. So whatever it takes to get there, I'm telling you, it's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Whatever sacrifices you have to make to follow God's plan for you, it is worth it. Okay? It's time to resurrect those dreams that he's put inside of you. Because there is no other way for you to become all that he's created you to be. And the ball is in your court. It's up to you to decide whether or not to follow God's plan for you. Let's pray.